Tonight we're going to be um, we're going to be wrapping up a series that we began about uh, eight weeks ago on uh, real faith in the real world, looking at the book of James and looking at some things. And if you remember, the purpose of the letter in James writing this was because he wanted to help believers who were scattered all over the place at that point. He wanted to help them learn how to uh, consistently live the things that they learned in Christ in, in the midst of being persecuted, in the midst of a lot of suffering. So he reminds them that God uses all kinds of tools, including suffering in our life, to really help make us perfect and complete. In other words, to help make us like Jesus to where we are, our um, lives are completely integrated in the things that we say and the things that we believe and what we live out is really one and the same. So last week we looked at the question, how... How can I do right when I've been done wrong? And we looked at patience and suffering. And James gave us four commands about that. Who, who remembers any of those four commands? Anybody remember one of those? Four things he told us to do. Hmm? Don't complain. That was one of them. That's exactly right. Don't complain, he says. Instead, lament to God. Don't complain to others. What else? Don't swear. Don't swear, yeah. And what he's talking about there is just don't make oaths. You know, uh, your, your word ought to be enough. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. If you have to make more of an oath than that, then it's a character problem. It's not a word problem. So what else? Hmm? Strengthen your heart. That's right. You need to learn. If you're going to do that, you've got to learn to see the activity of God in whatever you're going through. You've got to begin to be able to look at that and see that. What else? Be patient. That's exactly right. And there again, he talks about look forward to Christ's return. And you know, a lot of times... A lot of times I see folks today and, you know, they're not actually doing that as much. That was very, very prevalent in, in uh, this day and age because they were really looking forward to it. And they were realizing Jesus is coming back one day. And when he does, it's going to wrap up history. And, oh, what a great time that's going to be for us. And we talked last week about one of the reasons that's an encouragement to us is it doesn't matter what struggles you're going through right now. If you are a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is as bad as it ever gets. If you're not, this is as good as it ever gets. And so you better buy up everything you can possibly get right now because this is it. But if you're a follower of his, man, you know, as Paul would go on to say, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is it entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those that love him. So it's, it's going to be very different. Well, this week, James continues, and he kind of reminds the, the believers then, he tells them about kind of the Swiss army knife that God has provided for them as followers of his because he cares so much for them. And that knife is, is like the whole issue of prayer. And just like a Swiss army knife is one of those things that you can use in so many different situations, and it provides you know a way for you to unscrew this and open this and do all these different things. Prayer is one of those things that equips us to handle so many different situations that life throws at us. And so James, as he goes through here, he talks about prayers of an individual. He talks about prayers of elders. He talks about prayers of friends and companions as they pray for one another. And finally, he wraps up with the prayer of the prophet Elijah. And so we're going to start tonight with uh, the very first thing he says. And he says this, you know, and before we go there, let me just ask you this. When you think when you think about yourself, I want you to think for a minute, what is kind of your go-to in life? What is kind of your go-to? In other words, you know, what is the thing that you use that you kind of go to again and again when life is hard? Or what is the thing that you turn to 
for kind of uh, to regain or to maintain equilibrium in your life? You know, what is the thing you go to? What's your go-to? Now, I see a lot of people, and there's just differences. I mean, for some people, I think it's like worrying and stressing out over things. You know, they, they really worry. In fact, if they're not worried, they're worried that they don't have anything to worry about. And they're just worried. You know, they just worry, worry, worry all the time, you know. For others, it's like distractions. Now, distractions can take a lot of forms. For some people, it's like, you know, video games. And it's like, oh, you know, I just was kind of playing for like eight hours. Uh, you know, and it's kind of a distraction. For others, it's shopping. You know, uh, they, they just go off and they think, I will buy my way right back into equilibrium. You know, they just want to go off and do something. For others, you know, it's daydreaming or something. They just kind of, you know, go off. For other people, it's addictions. I mean, that can be any sort of addictions. It can be, you know, it can be drug addictions. It could be, you know, sex addictions. It could be drinking. It can be, you know, painkillers. It could be, you know, whatever the case. For most people, it's kind of a smorgasbord. For most people, it's like, okay, when I'm, when I'm depressed, I kind of turn to this thing. When I'm happier, I kind of turn to this thing, you know. But it's just a variety of different things that are their go-tos for coping. What James is contending is this. No matter what the circumstances, our go-to ought to be prayer. And he brings it up again and again, and we're going to look at that tonight. So, you know, when should we pray? Well, let's look at what James says here in James 5, uh, beginning in verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Let's take a minute as we get started. Let's just pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. Father, I do pray that tonight you would open the eyes of our minds and that, Father, we'd be able to understand the things that you want to say to us, that we would be able to see them. And, Father, we'd not only be able to see them, but, Father, we would see the connectedness and we would see how we need to begin to put these things into practice and the difference it can make in our lives as we do. So I pray that you would give us uh, minds that are alert. I pray you would give us uh, hearts that are open to you. And pray, God, that you would speak very personally, very powerfully to each one of our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the very first thing James says is this. He starts off and he says, Is any among you suffering? He must pray. Now, the word suffering here, it's a word that means uh, to be in distress or to, or to be afflicted. It's not one that you normally see used at all in, in the original language in dealing with any kind of illness at all. And it's not talking about like a specific kind of misfortune or like, you know, this is what happened to you and that's why you're, you're afflicted right now. But it's talking about kind of a general state of like, this is a hard season of life for you and you're not really enjoying it right now. You know, for some of you, that's called midterms. Uh, you know, it's just a hard season. You're not really enjoying it. For others, you know, it's different things. It could be family things. It could be emotional things. It could be financial things. 
It could be a lot of different things, but he's talking to people that are in this situation, and you know, it's that's just kind of the settled state that they're in right now. So, what should you do when you find yourself in those circumstances? Well, for some people, like we talked about earlier, for some people, it's worrying and stressing. You know, they will run every scenario through their mind about, oh, if only I had done this, or oh, I could do this, or oh, if only, and just worry, 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 stress, stress, stress. For others, it's more like comparing and complaining. You know, why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? Why didn't this happen to him? He deserved it. You know, why, why, you know, and just comparing, complaining, comparing, complaining. What, when you look at it, what you begin to realize, you know, none of that works. And so what he says here is we should pray asking God, you know, ask God for wisdom, ask him for understanding of the situation. So we'll really know how can we, we're going through the situation. How can we really live this out in such a way, God, that it really glorifies you? How can, how can we do that? So what you'll find is sometimes as you pray, God removes the affliction and it's just kind of gone. Other times what you'll pray is he'll just give you grace to be able to endure the affliction. But what you need to do each time is you need to take it and pray. Now, Paul, when Paul is talking to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy, this is getting towards the end of Paul's life. And Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Now, most of you have probably read that at some point. In fact, some of you have probably read it multiple times. And you probably read it, and then you went through, and you kind of thought, isn't that great? God just delivered him out of all those things. That, that, that's really good. I mean, good for him. And you look at that, and you might be tempted to think everything was rosy, but what I want us to do is look back at the very things he just talked about in the book of Acts. And what you'll find is, I'll give you a little bit of a history part first here, and then we'll just jump into this verse. But what happens is Paul is out, and he's with Barnabas, and he's with some other guys on, on the very first journey, he goes out to begin to go share Christ with people and talk to them about who Jesus is and, and, and what he's been about. And so as he's out, he comes first to, they, well, they visit a couple of places. John Mark leaves them and goes someplace else. And then they get to Antioch and they get this great reception when they get to Antioch. All of these people are excited. They're wanting to know more about Christ. They're wanting to know more about, you know, uh, what, what this life is that Paul is talking about. And they get there, but then there's some of the religious leaders, they don't like the fact that all of these people are gathering. So they begin to stir up trouble. And several of them talk about, you know, maybe we should take Paul and, and beat him and stuff. And so Paul begins to move on and they leave and they go on to Iconium. And they get to Iconium and things are going pretty well, but it's a very divided crowd. And a lot of people choose to follow, but then there's another good number that they decide, you know, Possibly it would be good if we stoned him. And so, uh, you know, he thought, I'm not really into that. So he leaves and they move on down to Lystra. And that's where we'll pick up right here. In Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking that he was dead. But while the disciples stood around him, 
he got up and entered the city. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel in that city and had made a good number of disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. The very places he had just gotten in trouble, he returned there. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, it is through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom of God. Now, when you stop and look at that, you think, did, did Paul just forget that? I mean, did one rock hit in the wrong spot or something? I mean, you know, what, what, what is up? I mean, because Paul just said, out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And what you find is, no, Paul didn't forget. See, the, the way God works is this. Sometimes he will deliver you from something. Other times he'll deliver you through something. But out of them all, he will deliver you. And so what you got to realize is, you know, the counsel of James is don't worry, don't stress, don't compare, don't complain, but instead pray. When you find yourself where the general demeanor of your life is like, life's just not going real well right now. He said, that's the time to pray. Then James reminds us that not everybody is going through bad times at the same time, okay? Every, I mean, that, that doesn't happen generally unless it's a Saturday and we've played a team that we should have beaten and we lost by one point. We won't talk about that. But, um, you know, he goes on to the next one. He says, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises, which singing praises, honestly, is just another form of praying. Singing pra when we sing praises to God, that is just us praying to God and, and telling him how great he is and how great he's doing. And here's the thing. Often when things are going well, we don't think about that. We, we kind of forget that. This word that he uses here, this cheerful, it's, it's, it's a word It means you have a contented heart, like everything is going well. So it's like, you know, that's a settled state as well. It's kind of like, you know, she said yes when you ask her out. Um, your professor canceled class the same day. On your way back home, you found $20 laying there in the street, and um, then you ate half of a pizza and lost a pound. And, you know, it's just like, this is a good week, you know, and you just have this settled state of contentedness. And you get back there, and he says, you know, um, when that's going on, you ought to pray. One of the things Tim Keller points out is this. He says, when life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seem safe, it does not occur to us. To pray. And that too often is the case. When things are going really well for us, we just don't pray. In fact, if you look at history, two of the things that have been the most detrimental to the church of Christ through the centuries have been peace and prosperity. Because when everything was going well, people forgot God and they began to not pray. They began to not even think about him. So whether you're in affliction or whether you're in prosperity, what you want to do is you want to take both of those opportunities to take and pray and trust God. And then the third thing he brings up, he says, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Now, this word sick here that he uses in, in, in this uh, verse, it, it's a word in the Greek. It means weaknesses, um, 
which basically incapacitate you. There, uh, there's several elements in the verse in the way that he describes things that show this is something where you are really sick. So what this is not saying is like every time you get a cold or something, you know, you need to be on the phone, hey, could all the elders come over to my house with some oil? You know, no, 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 that's not what he's talking about here. This is something where this is a very serious thing that, you know, you're, you're, you're in trouble here. And he says there's two actions that are be taken, prayer and anointing. And he talks about, you know, pray and then anoint them with oil. Now, you know, you look at that and sometimes people are like, what, what is that all about? Well, mainly what's that about? God, he may use one, he may use both, he may, he may use neither. But the idea behind both prayer and anointing is the church should be concerned not only with the spiritual aspects of the person, the, what's going on, but also the physical aspects of the sick person as well. In that day and age, oil that they're talking about here had some real medicinal qualities. Like if you read in um, like Luke 10 about the uh, uh, Good Samaritan, what you find is when he finds this guy that's beaten on the side of the road, he takes and he puts oil on him. He, he helps him to get well before he drops him off and tells the guy he'll pay for everything to get him healed. So what he's saying is, you know, you need to apply both of these. In fact, what this may indicate is that James is suggesting that we use all means available in healing someone besides the aspect of praying for them. You know, pray for them and get them the best medical help you can. And James, what you find is James doesn't see any conflict between prayer and medicine at all. You know, it, it's like, no, both work together. In fact, God's concerned for your physical health. He's concerned for your spiritual health. But the key phrase in here is the prayer of faith will restore the one who's sick. See, it's the prayer of faith. It's, he says the Lord is the one who will restore him. So sometimes when things that you'll hear people talk today is like faith healers, like this guy will come in and he will heal that person right there. The Bible doesn't really know that. The Bible talks about prayers of faith. But it doesn't talk about faith healers. It talks about prayers of faith, that as you pray, that God will choose to act many times in relation to that. God will choose to heal. God will choose to, but the one who heals all the time is God. Sometimes we can look at a passage like this and we can have one of those aha thoughts like, oh, this is great. So if I do this with like the prayer of faith, then God is obligated. I am like in control and I will be able to have God do whatever I want him to do. Here's what you know. Um, you can be sure of this. If you ever read scripture in any such way that any reading or interpretation results with you being in control, you have misinterpreted scripture. Okay. God is the one he's always in charge. And that takes us all the way back to the desire from the garden of Eden on of us wanting to take the place of God, of us wanting to be able to, to you know, to be able to command things and, and God's just going to do them whatever way we say, that, that's, that's not true. That, that is not going to work. In fact, I've, I've been reading in Isaiah in just personal time with God in the morning. And the other day I was reading in Isaiah, I think it's 45. And like four different times he comes up and he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And it's like, that's fairly clear. You know, God is God all by himself. And you know what? He's not going to be putting you in charge of things. But we look at that and we think, well, I'd be kind of, you know, I'd like to be able to do that, you know. 
The question when it comes to healing in this is not the power of God. It's really the purpose of God. What is it that God wants to accomplish through this? Because if you remember Paul, Paul comes to God and he prays for healing from God like four different times, he says. And he says what God told him is, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So you, you don't need me to heal you. And so Paul went on with this thorn in the flesh. And, you know, he was, as best we know, he was never healed from that. Why? Well, because it served the purposes of God and what he was doing right there for that to go on like that better than it would have for him to have been healed. Now, if you know God's purpose and you were crystal clear on exactly what God wanted to do and why he wanted to do it, you would probably be batting a thousand in prayer when you prayed all the time. But we don't know that sometimes. So sometimes when we pray, what we have to do is we pray really trusting God and really deciding, you know what, God, I don't know exactly what you want to do here, but I trust you that what you have is best. And so many times you pray and um, you're, you're not exactly sure what's going to happen. This isn't like one of those things, like it's this guarantee, well, God is obligated to do this. If, no, that's not it. It's not it at all. I've had a couple of occasions where, at least a couple, where um, I've had this, you know, let me tell you a story of a couple of alums. Um, had one of them uh, here, you know, uh, several months ago. He uh, called his mother-in-law, had gone in uh, to the hospital. She was very healthy. She had to have a procedure done, though, so she was going into the hospital. It was supposed to be a quick procedure. She was supposed to be out of the hospital the next day. She went to the hospital, and she developed a bit of an infection, and so he called and said, hey, you know, would you guys pray? So we did. And three days later, she died. And it was like, wow, that, that did not seem like it was. On the other hand, had another alum, and about uh, four years ago, his father um, was um, examined, and they told him, you know, you have brain cancer, and you've got uh, about a month to two months to live. So you need to put your affairs in order. And so they'd called and said, hey, you know, could you come up and, uh, and pray and stuff? And so went up there. We drove up to Ventura where they lived and uh, uh, prayed for him. And four years later, he's still with us. Now, can I explain all that? No, I wished I could. I wished I could. What I, what I do know is this. God's purpose and not his power is the only question when it comes to healing. Um, James says, you need to ask, you need to pray, you need to ask those to pray for you. And if it's in God's purpose, you will be healed because that's what God will do. But it's not because God can't act or something. It's because, you know, it serves his purposes sometimes better for, for him not to do that in certain situations. So we need to pray for ourselves. Sometimes we need to call in others to pray. And then he says this next. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Now, really what James is saying is this. Are you guilty? If you're guilty, there's two things you ought to do. Confess and pray. Now, I say, are you guilty? Because here's the thing. Have you ever noticed how people kind of weasel out of things? I mean, not you. 
but the person next to you. Uh, you know, how they kind of, you know, they kind of, you know, they, they kind of, well, I kind of did something wrong. Well, actually, it wasn't really wrong. It's, and by the time they get through explaining, you think they deserve a medal, not any punishment, you know, because they just, you know, they, they but what he's saying here is, are you guilty? Now, Nate uh, Chisholm and I were talking here uh, last week, and he told me about this one prof he had one time, and he would have the whole class write a definition of guilty, you know, write a definition of guilty. And so they'd all, you know, get after it and stuff. And he'd say, how many of your definitions have the word feel, feels, or feeling in it? And they're like, you know, about half the class. No. He'd say, okay, those aren't right. Guilt has, guilty has absolutely nothing to do with how you feel or how you felt about it or anything like that. Guilt has something to do, you are responsible for a wrong thing. You are responsible. And that's what he's talking about right here. He says, you know, when you find yourself responsible for something that's wrong, then what you want to do is you want to confess to one another and you want to pray for one another so that you can be healed. Not so you can be forgiven. No, because God has already taken care of that as you bring those things before him. He says, but I'm not talking about just bringing them before him. I'm talking about real change beginning to take place in your life. And if you want real change to take place in your life, then what you do is you confess to one another and you pray for one another. And that's where real change begins to take place. One of the things he's not saying, he's not saying, hey, bring this before a pastor, bring this before a priest. No, he's talking about bring this before your friend, bring this before your, your companions, bring this before them. And each one of us has the privilege and responsibility to pray for the other. And each one of us has the responsibility and privilege not only to pray for one another, but to confess to one another, to, to really do that. I, when we think of confession, a lot of times we think of something that's going to make us feel better about ourselves or something that's going to kind of relieve the guilt. But what you find is this, genuine confession really serves as, as the first step towards repentance and towards reconciliation. Repentance, that's a word, it just means you're going one way and you turn around and you go the other way. So in repentance, it's the first step in helping you decide, I'm really not going to do this anymore. And it's also the first step in, in reconciliation in that you look at things like if you've done something where you have wronged this person, then you take steps to make it right. You take steps to make it right. For instance, you see examples of that all over in Scripture. One of them would be Zacchaeus. If you remember, he was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And he climbed up in that sycamore tree to see what he could see. But when he did that, you see, Jesus comes along, and he calls him, and he comes down, and he begins to follow Jesus. And people are kind of, you know, looking at him, and they're thinking, this guy's kind of sketch. I mean, good night. I mean, this guy was like, you know, I'm not sure. He, he's, he's a very appropriate person for Jesus to be hanging out with. And yet Zacchaeus says to him, he says, you know what? Um, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give half of all my possessions to the poor so that we can help take care of them. And he says, and if I have wronged everybody, anybody, and you know you have those people going, if. He goes, if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to not only pay them back, I'm going to pay them back four times whatever I wronged them. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. 
In other words, boy, you see a guy here that is serious about change. You see a guy here that, that really does want to grow. And what you find is this. Genuine confession will lead to genuine change. If you really, really decide, you know what, I, I want to grow, I want to do this, then what you'll find is confession and prayer is part of that. If you sit down and you begin to confess, you begin to be serious about that with others that you're with, and they pray for you, those are the first steps in real change taking place in your life. Now, you think, so should I like share this with everybody? No. Um, thank you, but no. No, what you want to do is the circle of confession is as big as the circle of offense. And so if, you know what, if it's between you and a couple of other people, well, then you go to them and you own it. You don't go to them and say, I may or may not have. No, you go to them and you say, hey, this is what I did. And you be very open and honest there. You confess that to them. They'll pray for you. But then you begin to take steps to really change because genuine confession will lead to genuine change in your life. You don't have to, uh, if you're, obviously, if, if your sin has impacted the larger crowd, then you speak to the larger crowd, but not often. So one of the things that James says, pray when you're afflicted, pray when you are joyously content, have others pray for you when you're sick. And then he says, pray when another needs it. And um, you look at all that, you think, does all that praying make a difference? I mean, that's a lot of praying. And he says, yeah, in fact, he says something that should be a real deep encouragement to us. He says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, what he's saying there is he was just like us. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, most of you probably remember Elijah, if you've heard about him at all. Let me, if you haven't, I'll just tell you qu quickly about him. Elijah was one of these guys that, that, you know, lived before, and he was a prophet back in, in the early times. And so he goes before this wicked king over Judah named Ahab, and he tells him, he says, hey, you know what? Here's what's going to happen. It is not going to rain again until I say so. And when I say, then it will rain again. And that is exactly what's going to happen. And then he makes a little beeline out of the palace and leaves. And for the next three and a half years, it does not rain. And then all of a sudden, he comes back and he says, okay, I'll tell you what. Um, why don't we have a little bit of a contest? And so Ahab says, what did you have in mind? My idea of a contest was I would kill you. And he says, well, here's, here's this idea. You get all of your prophets, all of the guys that you think are so religiously right over here and stuff, you get all of them and you bring them over here and then I'll come over here and what we'll do is we'll have a little bit of a contest and they can take a bull and put it up here on this altar to sacrifice and I will get a bull and put it up on this one to sacrifice. And whoever's God answers with fire, that's the true God. So he's like, great. So there's like 450 prophets of Baal that show up over here. And Elijah's the only one out there by himself. And he's there. And these 450, I mean, they set up the altar and they're jumping around and they're crying out, you know, Baal, 
start this thing on fire. And they're all day long. And finally, Elijah starts making fun of him. He goes, maybe he's sick. You know, maybe he had to step out. Uh, have you thought, maybe he's on a journey. Uh, what's, what's going on with you? And they're cutting themselves and they're doing all kinds of stuff, just having a spiritual fit. And, you know, you look at Elijah and Elijah says, well, okay, let's repair the altar of God. So they put the bull up there on top of that. Then he goes, you know what? Let's make this fair. Pour water all over it. So they're like, water? That, that's not going to help. And he goes, do it again. And, and do it a third time. And so they just have water all over this. I mean, it's swimming with water. And then Elijah steps back and he just prays one simple prayer. No, no cutting himself, no jumping around, no yelling, screaming, nothing. He just prays one simple prayer. And he says, God, that they may know that I speak your word and that I speak for you and that they may know who you are, that you are the God Almighty. Would you send fire? And it's like, whoosh. And suddenly everything is burned up right there, including all the water that was there, just burned up. Now we look at that and we're like, that is so cool. If I could do that by Tommy Trojan, that would just, I mean, you talk about making some, you know, I mean, my professor would go, I'm changing it to an A um, right there. You know, I mean, we look at that and we get all excited about it. You know, realistically though, guys, we get so excited about that. That was really two days. Two days in the life of Elijah. There, there was much, much more that went on with him in his life, just like there is in ours. And we kind of forget that sometimes. You know, we, we would love to be like him. We would love to be able to have that kind of power resident. We would love to be able to do that. But what we forget is what James reminds us of. In fact, what James will not let us forget. Elijah was a man just like you. Just like you. And so you start looking, you think, but, but well, what's the difference? Because I don't see a lot of that happening with me. I mean, what's the difference in that? Well, let, let me show you the difference. This, this is kind of your life right here. Let me show you a little thing right here. This is, this is your life. You can see right there, one end, you know, a little blue thing. You're, you're a little blue right now. That You're probably going through a blue time. So, uh, you know, this is your life. There's the start. There's the finish. It's about that long. And actually, that's probably generous when you look at it in the scale of things. But what we tend to think is this. We tend to think, if I just had different circumstances, if I just had different circumstances... Man, life, life would be different. I mean, if I just had different parents, if I just had a different upbringing, if I just had a different bank account, if I just had different looks, if I just had a different personality, if I just had different giftings, if I just had different circumstances, I could maybe be like Elijah. But see, it's my circumstances. That's the problem. And you know what? If this was something that Elijah did when he was six months old, then I'd say, you know, you may be right. I mean, not many people are responsible for anything in their life at six months, you know. But this wasn't at six months. And here's what you find. The further you go in life, the further you step into life, less and less and less and less is your circumstances making up anything. What does make the difference is your choices. 
And what you'll find with Elijah was Elijah's choices are what made him who he was. He was just like us, but he was willing to make different choices. What made Elijah so poignant in public was how personally he was connected to God in private. And what you'll find, men and women, is that is exactly the same thing with us today. You have to choose, will you really spend the time praying? You know, when, when things are really, you know, bad and life just seems in a despair, what do you do? You know, what's your choice? Do you pray? When things are really good, do you just think, well, I, you know, I deserve this and move right on? Or do you think, you know, man, I really need to thank God. I really need to pray, you know? When, whenever, you know, you're sick and something, do you think, you know, well, I just hope I'll make it through. I'll work, I'll trust medicine. Or do you think, you know, I need to trust medicine, but I need to have people pray. You know, when, when you're living life in such a way that you realize, okay, I've done this wrong, do you invite others in to be able to confess to them and have them pray for you? Because if you do see when you make those choices, then you have the opportunity to actually experience some of the same things that Elijah did. That's the encouragement to us. You can have the idea, sometimes you can look at that and you think, man, Elijah got God to do whatever he wanted. No, 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 no. If you read a little closer, what you find is Elijah did exactly what God wanted. That was really what happened. In fact, what Elijah was aware of was what God had said in Deuteronomy 11. In Deuteronomy 11, verses 13 through 17, God says, <clears throat> it shall come about that if you listen, he's speaking to Israel at this time. He says, it will come about that if you listen obediently to my commands, which I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and late rain. We talked about that last week. You know, He'll give the rain in its season that you may gather your grain and your new wine and your new oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. But beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord has given you. <clears throat> what what Elijah was aware of was God had said, if these people will not follow me, I'll just cause it not to rain. And this is an agrarian culture. And if it doesn't rain, guess what? Everybody's in big trouble. And so Elijah prays and Elijah says, God, would you do the very thing that you've said you'll do? You've promised to do this. Would you do that? Would you just have it not rain? And guess what happened? It didn't rain. You see, Elijah was a man just like us. God's promises for answered prayer involve every single one of us, not just the ones that we think of as kind of like spiritual superstars. No, 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 not at all. But for any one of us, we have that same opportunity to look at what God has said and then to bring those things before God and say, God, would you do this? Would you act in this way? Now, you've heard me tell you this before, but I want you to hear it a little different this time. I've told you before, you know, there are things God will do if you pray that he won't if you don't. But what I want you to understand is this. There are things God will do if you pray that he won't if you don't.
See, sometimes I think we hear that in a very general way. You need to hear that in a very specific way. There are things that God is willing to do, but what you need to do is you just need to pray. There was a Scottish theologian named Robert Law, and he said this, Prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. And I think that is exactly right. See, what you want to do is you want to figure, okay, what is it God wants done here? Man, let's join him. Let's pray for that. Let's ask him to, that's why Jesus, when he's teaching people how to pray, he says, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want God's will done right here on earth. Corey Tim Boom used to ask a question all the time. She said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? And I think, what a great question. In other words, she's asking, is it crucial to the very operation of your life? Is it really your go-to? Or is it just the thing you pull out when something goes wrong? Wh which one is it? Because it needs to be the go-to in our life. So wh why, why make prayer the go-to in your life? Well, it's really one simple reason because not just because of God's power. I mean, God is powerful, but it is because of how much he cares for you. Because of how much he cares for you. That's why you make prayer the go-to. You know, he cares about you when you are enduring misfortune. And so you can pray and sometimes he will take you from something. He'll remove affliction. Other times he'll give you the ability to endure. He'll take you through it. He cares about you when you're totally content. So one of the things you ought to do is you ought to pray and you ought to celebrate the good times with him just like you did whenever you were coming to him with the bad times because honestly, he's responsible for the good times. He's responsible for all the good gifts you have. He cares about you when you're battling sickness. And so one of the things you ought to do is you ought to have people pray for you and you ought to pray looking at God's purpose. You know, what is it God's wanting to do here? because his purpose will prevail. And then, you know, he cares about you when you are calling on or coming to the aid of others to help battle sin. And so one of the things he wants you to do is he wants you to confess and pray for one another so that real change can actually take place in your life. And see, that's one of the things that we want to do because when Jesus is speaking in in Matthew 5, 16, he says, let your light so shine. In other words, your lifestyle. Let your lifestyle so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So real change can actually take place. And all of that takes place and all of that comes about. And we see great power in prayer because of how God cares for us. Peter probably summed it up best in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. So men and women, what I would encourage you <clears throat> tonight is no matter the situation you find yourself in, pray. Make that your go-to. Make that your first response, not your last response. Make it your very first response, the very first thing that you do. Go before God and pray about that and take it to him. Let me pray for us, and I'll invite the worship team back up. Father, thank you. Thank you that um, every good and perfect gift that we enjoy comes from you. 
you are the one that does that. Father, every, um, every time we're enduring things, um, whether it's uh, sickness, affliction, whether it's sin, whatever it is, Father, you are the one who has um, wants to deliver us from that. You're the one who wants to give us the ability to endure. Father, what you really want is you want us to trust you enough to make you the one that we run to, to make you the go-to in our life. So I pray that we would live that out in a practical way that would really make a difference in our life on a day-to-day basis. And we pray that, Father, in Jesus' name.